I'd invite you to turn to the book of Ephesians, please. And I did not write the page number that the blue Bibles have, if you don't have a Bible with you this morning. I've given them out for the, I think, every, every sermon that I've done so far, but it's right after, let's see, it's right after Galatians. So Galatians, Ephesians, this is in the New Testament, so it's about right here. So if you don't have a Bible, I would ask you to open it up there and follow along with us. You know, there's a story told about an old Navajo Native American who had become rich because he, they'd found oil on his property. And he'd taken all the money and he deposited it in a bank and he was quite an often visitor to the bank. Now, not because he actually went and withdrew this money, but he went and visited the, the bank and the banker knew him by name and the banker knew his, just the way that he acted and the way that he his brain thought. And the man would show up to the bank and say to the banker, and I have to make sure I say this correctly, grass all gone, sheep all sick, water holes dry. Now the banker, he wouldn't say a word. He'd just take him back to the vault and he'd set it, the, the old man down. And he would set some cash money in front of him, actually silver dollars at that time, and he would place them to where the, the old man was at, and he would say, these are yours. And then the old man would spend an hour or so looking at his money, stacked it up and counted them, and then he would leave. But before he would leave, he would say this, grass all green, Sheep all well, water holes all full. Now, what changed? He'd looked at his resources. He understood what he had. Now, that's where encouragement is found when we look at the resources that we have. We have resources that are yours if you're in Christ, resources that your father owns the cattle on a thousand hills. You have access to these things, the riches, the facts, the resources that undergird your faith. Well, as we continue in the series in Ephesians, in this letter to the Ephesians, I hope that you'll read it that way. I was able to go into a Sunday school class this morning, and they were going through 1 Peter, and I was just going, man, 1 Peter sounds an awful lot like Ephesians. Just the riches that we have in Christ Jesus, our inheritance. Well, as we continue, as I say, I hope you read it this way. We most definitely have, and we do most definitely have, a guaranteed inheritance. What's guaranteed means? It's solid. You'll get it, and you will get it in due time. Well, this morning we finished the opening hymn of praise and celebration that Paul wrote to the church members in Ephesus. And before he finished, again, remember, this is the longest uninterrupted sentence in the Greek language in the New Testament, even in the Old Testament. Old Testament was written in Hebrew and Aramaic. But 202 Greek words without a period, without a comma. 
without anything. He just started on a roll and he kept going. One man described this sentence, and I quote, a symphony that was brilliantly written to not only describe the ultimate plan of God beginning in the past, flowing into the present, but also traveling on into eternity. The melody resonates beautifully with the role of the Father in His planning. Church, when did He plan this? Before the foundation of the world. The Son's role in accomplishing the plan. How did the Son accomplish the plan? He came to earth. He lived a perfect life. He died a perfect death, was buried, was risen again, according to the Scriptures, concluding with the Holy Spirit's role in linking us together with Christ and each other. He has sealed us. We'll get to that later. I'd like to begin our time in the Word this morning by reading the entire hymn, the entirety of what we've been studying, verses 3 to 14. Would you stand with me? Ephesians chapter 1, beginning at verse 3, this is the word of the Lord. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him in love. He predestined us for adoption to Himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purposes of His will, to the praise of His glorious grace, with which He has blessed us in the Beloved. In Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of His grace, which He lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of His will, according to His purpose, which He set forth in Christ, as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things to Him, things in heaven and things on earth. Now this morning's passage. In Him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of Him who works all things according to the counsel of His will, so that we who were first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of His glory. In Him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in Him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possessions of it to the praise of His glory. Lord, I pray to You as we meditate on the truth today, may they give us confidence and joy in what You have accomplished and the blessings that we have been given in Christ Jesus. May God bless the reading of His Word. You may be seated. Well, speaking of our inheritance, the question must be asked, not maybe, not maybe be asked, no, it must be asked and answered, who is the ultimate source of our inheritance? Who is the ultimate source of our inheritance? And before you answer, I'm glad the kids are gone. 
because they would automatically come up with this. I, I accused, when I was a youth pastor, I accused my students of always answering, and th- they had three answers, three answers, and they would go, Bible, church, pray. Why are you saying that? Because those are the most the answers of what the questions are asked in a, in a spiritual talk or a spiritual sermon. Well, it's not that. It's not Bible, church, pray. Who is the ultimate source of our inheritance? According to the hymn that spans verses 3 to 14, it is the answer, Dick said it, but it is this, these words, in Him. In Him. Christ. In Jesus. In the Beloved. All speaking of the divine Son of God. Jesus of Nazareth. Ten times, ten times in these 12 verses, something was said in Him, in Christ Jesus, or in the Beloved. Ten times. I think we better pay attention to that. In the first clause of verse 11, it answers the question for Him, for us, excuse me. In Him, we have obtained an inheritance. Now, before you begin to think about this and you're going, okay, well, that must be very obscure. Many theologians, in fact, the majority of them agree that in Christ is the central category of Paul's thinking and teaching. In Christ. Now, I'm speaking of the entirety of his writings from, what, from Romans to 2 Timothy. In Christ. Now, according, and I say this not lovingly, but kind of sarcastically. According to a dead German's calculation, I say dead German because when I speak of a dead German, I speak of a liberal German who spoke in the 17th, 18th, and 19th centuries who just threw the Word of God away. They studied the Word of God, but they didn't believe in any of the miracles. They were liberal theologians. But this German said, Paul uses this term 169 times in his writings, in Christ, in Jesus Christ, in Christ. According to Gerhard Kittel, the terms are not found in writings prior to Paul and are very rare outside of them. So what does it mean? What does it mean? What what does Paul mean when it says to be in Christ? What takes place? Well, first of all, when you're in Christ, you've been transformed. Not only partly transformed, thoroughly transformed. I like to say this, not just a little bit, not just kinda, but you've been radically changed. 2 Corinthians 5.17 reads, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. And when we read the new has come, it's written in a way that means it is a constant, continuous action. It never grows old. It's continuing. We're new. We're new creations. It will remain. You've been made alive. He writes that in chapter, totally, you'll be made, you were made alive in chapter 2, verses 5 of Ephesians. 
Someone who is in Christ has been changed from the inside out, not from the outside in, from the inside out. Righteousness flows from the inside, which changes our, outside, our outward actions. Out of you flows stagnant water. What did Jesus say? Out of you, out of your heart flows living water. And that comes from inside. Someone in Christ suddenly despises actions that the world loves. Why, why don't I like that anymore? Or why, why am I totally furious if I fall, if I mess up? Why don't I like the movies that I used to like? Those who are in Christ forgive when those who are not in Christ continue to hold grudges. I forgive you. We move on. One commentator writes, and I hadn't thought about it until before this week, but he's dead on, and I quote, in Christ far outstrips the term Christian when describing Christianity. Let me say that again. In Christ far outstrips the term Christian when describing Christianity. I'll go forward and go on. He says, aside from the fact that Christian is only used three times in the New Testament, only three, in Acts 11, in Acts 26, and in 1 Peter 4, that title allows for an ambiguous interpretation. That means, oh, we can get away with what we kind of want to get away with. It can mean one who has a specific cultural affinity. We're a Christian nation. I know we're not. Or a Western tradition. Well, that's a Christian thing to do. Hmm. Or one who lives on one side of barbed wire and is killing those on the other side. But in Christ invites no such abuse because it demands reflection on a dynamic living relationship. No wonder Paul loved it. He said, for to me, to live is Christ, said Paul in Philippians. Christianity is Christ. It's Christ. Those who are not in Christ are not Christians. And if and when they become real Christians, they will be in Christ and thus radically transformed and alive, close quote. Well, the second reality of being in Christ is one of twofold unity, which that, I mean, it brings unity in two ways. Well, first, one is united with Christ. If you're in Christ, you're united with Him. You are seated with Him in the heavenlies. That is your position. When God sees you, He sees His Son, He sees you sitting right next to Him. You are seated with Him in the heavenlies. Would you turn to Romans chapter 6, please? Here Paul explains it a little bit further. Romans 6, beginning at verse 3. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into His death? We were buried, therefore, with Him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. 
For if we have been united with Him in a death like His, we shall certainly be united with Him in a resurrection like His. Paul explained it further in 1 Corinthians 15 where he uses a farming analogy. But when a person puts their trust in Christ, something that Luther called the great exchange miraculously takes place. Well, when this happens, what, what happens? We're seen as being spiritually placed on the cross as well. Your sins were nailed to that cross with Christ. Our sin was been, has, paid for, has been paid for by the perfect substitute, not only dying, but being buried with Christ and rising again with Christ. That's why, because we know Christ rose again, we'll rise too. That is a very, very good thing. And you know what? You're not only rising again with Him, but you're rising again with every other believer, which leads us to the second aspect of unity of those who are in Christ. We understand that we're in Christ. We understand we're united with Him, but you're united with other believers. Take a look. You're united with these people who are sitting in this room if they are in Christ. You're united with those who are online if you're in Christ. You're united with those across the world who, before you lived and after you're off of this earth, after you're buried. You're united with them. I know this is a newsflash, but it's not only your family. It's a whole bunch of nations, a whole bunch of different people, a whole bunch of different races, creeds. My goodness, there might even be Baptists there. <laughs> that was for you. In Galatian, Paul writes, there is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And this unity is what sets those who are in Christ apart from those who aren't. Alexander McLaren wrote, and I quote, When these words were spoken, the then known civilized world was cleft by great, deep gulfs of separation, like the crevices in a glacier by the side of which our racial animosities and class differences are merely superficial cracks on the surface. Language, religion, national animosities, differences of condition, and the saddest of all, differences of sex split the world up into alien fragments. A stranger and an enemy were expressed in one language by the same word. If you're a stranger, you're my enemy. The learned and the unlearned, the slave and his master, the barbarian and the Greek, the man and the woman stood on opposite sides of the gulfs, flinging hostility across. Can you see the picture? We still see this picture. Then the benefits of the gospel came. 
Then the barbarian, the Scythian, bond and free, male and female, Jew and Greek, the learned and the ignorant, clasped hands and sat down at one table and felt themselves all one in Christ Jesus. Ephesians speaks to critical race theory. Ephesians speaks to when folks are on one side and the other. If we're in Christ, we are one because of Him. The old praise song rings true. They'll know we are Christians by our love. Let's take a breath here. At least I need to take a breath. I'm going to change gears. Back to the passage, though. I want you to look at verse 11, please. Speaking of the unity in Christ, until verse 11, Paul had been speaking about all of the elect. All, I mean Jew, Gentile, male, female, everyone, all of the elect, and all of those who had been chosen by God before the what? The foundation of the world. Now he begins to make a distinction now, there are two views here, and just let me explain this really quickly when we're going to have to look at the pronouns, all right? They make a difference. We, we like to skip over them, but we look at the pronouns. What does we mean, and what does you mean? Well, there are two views, at least the two majority views. The first one, we, means Paul from Rome writing from a prison, and those who were with him, with probably his, his secretary that was writing the book, or the second view, we, the Jewish people, the Jewish people who came to Christ, or the whole Jewish nation. I take the second view. We, the Jewish people who came to Christ. Let me explain. He begins to emphasize now the, the Gentiles' inclusion into salvation. Verse 11, in Him, there's that phrase again, in Him, we, the Jewish people, the apostles, the apostles were part of those Jewish people. They were 12 Jews who God sent out and began winning the world. In Him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purposes of Him who works all things according to the counsel of His will. The inheritance being all the spiritual blessings in the heavenlies. We all have that. Decided upon before the world began, specifically how God would bring them to pass. How would God save the world? And we understand that the Father had chosen that the physical sons of Abraham, specifically Abraham, was promised through you the world will be blessed. And specifically the 12 tribes of Israel would be used to display God's glory. And nations would come and they were supposed to go to the other nations and proclaim His glory. Was it because they were the biggest and baddest nation on the world in the world? No. They were not a people who were stronger, larger and richer, but they were a people who God chose to show his power 
I love it, the power of his strong right arm. Left-hander, sorry. God's right arm is strong. It shows that he has ultimate power. Well, the Jewish people, they were, in fact, they were considered to be God's heritage. You find that in Deuteronomy 9 and Deuteronomy 32, among other places. They've been given the Holy Scriptures. And verse 12 explains, so that we, who were the first to hope in Christ, in the Messiah, looking at this verse, actually in the Greek language, it has a definite article before Christ, in the Christ, in the Messiah, specifically Him. Out of a small group so small came the Savior of the world, also that it might be to the praise of His glory. Everything to the praise of His glory. It goes back to that. It's all about God. It's not about a particular group. It's not about Jew. It's not about Gentile. It's to the praise of His glory, and we've been just honored to be a part of it. Verse 13, in Him, you, all right, I'm arguing that this is a change, you, Gentiles, we'll wait. In Him, you also, when you heard the word of truth, what's the word of truth? the truth of the gospel, the gospel, the exclusivity of Christ alone, the gospel, the good news about Christ being crucified for your sins, buried and then rising again according to the Scriptures, the truth of your salvation, being redeemed from bondage, given new life, and believed in Him. Again, the whole verse in context. In Him, you also, when you heard of the word of truth, the gospel, of your salvation, and believed in Him. Believed in Him. Believing is putting your faith in what Christ accomplished. Saying, I choose you. I want to be in you. And being in Him is the source of all these blessings. Outside of Him, there is nothing of any lasting value. There is no lasting value. If you're not found to be in Christ, the only inheritance that you will ever enjoy will die and slip away with you when you take your last breath on earth. That's not very far away. So to make this unmistakable, we understand that the ultimate source of our inheritance comes from being in Christ. In Christ, you are a new creation. The only way that we receive every spiritual blessing is being in Christ. 
Yet none of these blessings that we have received and still wait to receive in full would be possible without the third person of the triune Godhead because it is the Holy Spirit who is the ultimate guarantee of our inheritance. He guarantees our inheritance. Commentator Clinton Arnold makes a great observation that is insightful, and I'd like to read it to you. I think it would clear up, it will clear up some misinformation. He says, we might expect Paul to say that after hearing and believing the gospel, they were saved. Here he uses an expression that he used only one time earlier to describe God's work in their lives. The principal idea here is that God has bestowed His Spirit on believers, and this occurs after people hear the gospel and put their faith in the message. It's at the same time. You hear the gospel, you hear the message, you believe, and you are sealed. It's not a second blessing. You're sealed at the time of your salvation, he goes on. In spite of the fact that the image of sealing occurs in texts of some of the early church fathers to speak of the Spirit's coming after baptism, it is best here to stay with the explicit words of the text and link the coming of the Spirit with the exercise of faith. If you are in Christ, you're sealed. So what does sealed mean? Well, nowhere in the New Testament is sealing used as a metaphor of the baptism in the Spirit. This usage occurs only later, and I close the quote just so we don't get confused with some of the charismatics who believe that you're going to receive a second blessing of the Spirit. If you're in Christ, you have the Spirit of God. Let's look back to the text as at the last part of verse 13. You were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it. For us to understand these final truths, we have to understand two things. The first, what does it mean to be sealed? What does it mean to be sealed? And the second, which we'll get to in a second, how is the Holy Spirit a guarantee of our inheritance? Regarding the, what it does, what it means to be sealed. In the ancient world, the ancient world, the owner of the property announced that he owned had ownership by attaching his seal to the possessions. They either did it with wax, and they had a uh, signet ring, they would put it on, or they'd put a brand on it. They would brand their property, much like livestock are branded. The modern equivalent, have you ever seen a gang tag their area? They just write their gang name on it. That just signifies that this area is theirs. Don't mess with it. A preacher has said, that's what God has done for us. He tagged us. I don't think he expected we didn't take spray paint, but he sealed us. 
not with physical burns or ink. He has left His mark on us within our hearts. You can feel it. You just know. You know that you have the seal. Speaking about this very truth in the book of Romans, we're told, the Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if the children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. The Spirit bears witness. Do we feel Him all the time? No, we don't because sometimes we mess up. But think with me. We are His own. And because we are His own, it also means that we, you, are protected. You're protected. Look forward to chapter 4 in Ephesians. Chapter 4, verse 30. He writes, And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Notice it doesn't say, don't grieve or you'll be thrown away, thrown out, you're done. It's so we don't grieve God. You've been sealed for the day of redemption. That's when you die. Whatever takes place on earth, God has you. I cannot say that more forcefully. He's got you in His hands, and you cannot get out. What about the second question? How is the Holy Spirit a guarantee of our inheritance? Now, before I answer this, I'm going to ask you a question and I say gonna because I want to go into my oaky roots. Gonna. Here's the question. How big is your God? How big is your God? How powerful is the great God Almighty, the creator of heaven and earth? How big is your God? We used to say something to our kids, my wife, when they were, you probably have done this to a little infant. How big are you? So big. Well, my God is so big that you do not have to worry. The Holy Spirit guarantees us by sealing us but He also guarantees it with His pledge. God does not lie. He is our arabone. It's the Greek word for deposit, an arabone. He's the down payment of what is to come, the arabone. He's the earnest money given to secure a purchase. He's the 20% of your house that you have to lay down so they'll even give you a loan. Well, He's bigger than that. The form of the word 
was even used to come as known as an engagement ring, an arabone. You could say that the Spirit is the church's pledge that the divine bridegroom, Christ, will never leave her or forsake you. He will love you. And nothing will stop that. The Holy Spirit gives a true foretaste of what we can expect in eternity. R. Kent Hughes explains the reality of this, and he writes, think with him, please. Imagine the sublimest, most treasured experiences of the Holy Spirit we have ever had and then realize they are only a foretaste, the tip of the tongue on the spoon of what is to come. Remember the release in coming to Christ and knowing you were forgiven? Remember that time when in worship you were smitten with awe? Remember the time you followed the Spirit's leading and were wonderfully used? Remember the satisfaction of finding the fruits of the Spirit surprising you with goodness where you once responded wickedly? How did that happen? Think of all this and then multiply it a million-fold. Here on earth, we have experienced the first dollar of a million celestial dollars, the earnest. We have the dawning of knowledge, but then we will have the midday sun. What no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love Him. These things God has revealed to us through the Spirit. The Arabon. Which brings us to the ultimate purpose for our inheritance. The ultimate purpose. A hint. I don't think you'll see it there. Well, yeah, I guess you do, but you're going to have to have your Bibles open for that, so don't look at it yet. A hint, we read it in verse 3. Blessed be the God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Remember, blessed means to honor, to glorify, to worship. We heard it again in verse 6. To the praise of His glorious grace. Yes, God, you're worthy. We saw it in verse 12, to the praise of His glory. We're here to praise God. And now, now Paul finishes the hymn with the purpose of all these blessings, the reason that He's given to us who are in Christ every spiritual blessing, the reason He chose you before the foundation, before the beginning of the world, the reason that He predestined to adopt you into His family. To what, so that it would be holy and blameless before Him. The reason we have redemption. We've been brought from the slave market of sin. The reason He's given us spiritual insight and wisdom to be able to live lives of worth. The reason He decided to bring both Jew and Gentile, male and female, into one body, into His kingdom. What? To the praise of His glory to the praise of His glory. We aren't saved because of our merits. We aren't saved 
We're saved because of the Father's plan, the Son's work, and the Spirit's sealing. What an inheritance we have. All glory be to God.